So last week we were hearing how things were supposed to be in the world. Genesis 1 and 2 uh, paints a very clear picture of God's intention for humanity. Uh, we saw the kind of relationship that we are supposed to have uh, with God, with creation itself, and with one another. But we don't have to look too hard at the world to see that something has gone badly wrong. We were made for an intimate relationship with God. But human beings have become estranged from God. Uh, now, in our world, we see a plethora of worldviews and religions and philosophies, all which make very different truth claims. Uh, humanity is tremendously confused and conflicted about how to have a right relationship with God. And in our culture, uh, there's been what we might almost describe as a whole-scale rejection of God. More and more people refuse to believe in God. And there are various reasons for that. Uh, some people don't want there to be a God. Uh, others maybe uh, feel that God has let them down in some way. Others are skeptical of any person or religion or organization that makes any sort of a truth claim. And others are just happy to believe what everyone else seems to believe uh, without ever giving it very much thought. Of course, that's oversimplifying things, but that is generally where we are. Uh, so what about our relationship with creation? Well, our God-given mandate was to care for creation, uh, to harness its full potential so that even more life could flourish. What have we done? Uh, we've systematically destroyed our rainforests, polluted our air and water, hunted animals to distinction, destroyed their habitats, uh, created mountains of waste. And yes, there are admirable um, moves to reverse these tragedies, but on the whole, we're still doing more harm than good. And when it comes to our relationship with one another, we're not doing any better. Greed, corruption, prejudice, hatred, uh, which lead to war and terrorism and famine, poverty, and then the things like slavery, abuse, sexual immorality, selfishness, hard-heartedness, the list goes on. I, I think all of us have a sense that this is not the way that things were meant to be. I've heard people say that they believe that humanity is essentially good, uh, but that is not where the evidence points us. Now, this might all sound a little bit depressing, but remember the gospel is good news. Jesus is good news. And most of the Bible tells a story about what God is doing uh, to remedy this tragic situation. How God is working to mend the fractured relationships that humans have uh, with him, with creation itself, and with one another. But we can't jump straight to the solution until we understand the problem. And that is why the opening chapters of Genesis are so important. So this morning we're going to try and understand what went wrong. And we'll be looking at four things. Temptation, sin, consequences... And then hope. There's always hope. Firstly, temptation. So you remember that in the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this was the only tree that Adam and Eve were not permitted to eat from. And this tree represents a choice. Will Adam and Eve, will humanity accept God's definition of right and wrong 
Or will they try and gain this knowledge for themselves, effectively trying to cut God out of the loop? It's interesting. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear in in this sense means to respect, to revere, to be in awe of. Will Adam and Eve fear the Lord and do things his way? Or will they try and control the situation for themselves? You see, it's not that God doesn't want Adam and Eve to have this knowledge. It's that he needs to be the one to give it to them. They can't just seize it. And in a way, the same thing applies to us. If we want the knowledge of good and evil, if we want to know right from wrong, then that knowledge, that wisdom must come from God. We can't just make a grab for it. We can't uh, make up our morality as we go along. We can't just do uh, whatever feels right to us. Or at least we can. But if we do, we don't become wise and knowledgeable. We become fools in rebellion against God. So that's the tree. Then we have uh, the temptation, which is personified uh, by the snake or the serpent. Now, the author of Genesis may not have had Satan in mind when this was written, uh, but when we read it in the, uh, through the lens of Jesus and the New Testament, I think we can see that uh, the serpent is Satan. And the first thing he says is this. Did God really say, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He focuses on the one thing that Adam and Eve were not permitted to do, the one prohibition, and then he exaggerates it. Because God didn't say they couldn't eat from any of the trees. He said they couldn't eat from one specific tree. And despite the fact that they could eat from any of the trees in the garden, the serpent quotes God as saying, you must not, you must not In other words, God is a killjoy. He's a spoil sport. He's trying to stop you doing the things that you want to do. And this, I believe, is another reason why people uh, might want to steer clear of God. All they hear is, you must not, instead of appreciating the wonderful freedom that God has given us to enjoy his creation and to live life to the full. But Eve spots this misrepresentation of what God actually said. And she replies, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So here we see why God says, you must not. God gives us prohibitions because he wants to protect us. God wants to protect us because he loves us. If I say to my children, you must not run out into the road, I'm not being a killjoy. I just don't want them to get run over. I don't want them to get hurt. And we may say, yeah, this makes sense. Until God reveals something uh, that's wrong in our lives. Something that we don't want to give up. Or he reveals something that we're not doing, that we ought to be doing, that we don't really want to do. But, you know, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, over time, we get a heightened sense of the sin in our lives, and you could call it the knowledge of good and evil. It's as if the Holy Spirit puts his finger on things and says, that's got to go. And sometimes, for various reasons, we object. 
when I was doing youth work at my last church, I was having a, a conversation with a group of teenage lads, and the conversation turned to the subject of pornography. And so I gave a Christian perspective on this, and when I finished speaking, one of the lads looked at me aghast and said, are you saying pornography is wrong? And he really struggled with that. And there will be things in our lives that the Holy Spirit reveals and we'll be like, I'm not sure I want to do anything about that. But we must if we want to go on restoring our relationship with God and with creation and with one another, then we must accept God's definition of what is right and wrong instead of seizing autonomy and trying to make it up as we go along. You know, we can trust God. We can trust God. He doesn't prohibit us from doing anything that is good for us. And he doesn't encourage us to do anything that is detrimental. We can trust God. And Eve told the serpent, God told us that if we eat that fruit, we'll die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. And here we see the serpent trying to discredit what God has said. He, he doesn't want Eve to trust God's word. And what's really sad about this is that the serpent is tempting Eve with something that she already has. Because last week we saw that God made Adam and Eve in his image. They already are, in a sense, like God. We're made in God's image. In that sense, we are like God, but we are not God. And we need to be very careful about turning ourselves into little gods who arbitrate between right and wrong uh, based on the prevailing culture, cultural norms, uh, our feelings, uh, which we have to acknowledge uh, are not always in line with God's will, or any moral philosophy from outside of the Bible, because there's no guarantee that any of those things will be in line with God's will for our lives and for creation. But in the snake's reply, he makes it sound as if God was keeping this knowledge from the man and the woman, when in reality it looks far more likely that God was keeping the knowledge for them. But it's not keeping the knowledge from them, he's keeping it for them. In other words, God wants them to have this knowledge, but he needs to be the one to give it to them. They can't just grab at it. Basically, the serpent is casting doubt on God's character. He's effectively saying, God has deceived you. Don't listen to him. And often it's doubt that holds us back from the fullness of life that Jesus offers. And the more we doubt, the more we hold back. And Satan whispers in our ear, do you really think that life would be better if you surrender your whole life to Jesus? Is God really going to give you that time back if you give time to God? Have you got time to, to pray and to read God's word, to, 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 to be at church, to hang out with other Christians? Have you got time for all that? Does it make any difference anyway? We're encouraged to doubt. And like Eve, very often we let those doubts get the better of us. Now up until this point, we've been dealing with temptation, but that all changes with verse 6 because the temptation become sin. Verse 6 says this. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree, uh, or saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. 
She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And now, for the first time, we realize that Adam was with Eve all along, all the time she's having this conversation with the serpent. And he did nothing to avert this catastrophe. So the man and the woman are equally responsible. Eve's sin is one of action. She takes the fruit, she eats it, she offers it to Adam. Adam's sin, in the first instance, is one of inaction. He saw what was going on. He knew it was wrong. And he did absolutely nothing. So sin is not about just the stuff that we do, but also the stuff that we don't do. Sin is basically about declaring our independence from God. It's like we're deliberately uh, cutting ourselves loose from God's plan. And so we do the things that God prohibits, and we fail to do the things that God would have us do. But how arrogant we are to think that our way is preferable to God's. I wonder how many aspects of our life and our character, our routines and our habits are out of whack with what God would want for us. Well, Genesis uh, makes it very clear that there are serious consequences to sin, and that's what we're going to look at now. We see that sin fractures all three relationships that we've been talking about. It fractures our relationship with God, uh, with creation itself, and with one another. So the first thing is that the man and the woman recognize uh, that they're naked. They become aware of this, and they, they cover themselves with fig leaves. And so straight away, we have an indication that there's already a level of distrust between them. And then God comes to walk in the garden, and it seems that God was expecting to walk with Adam and Eve. And this indicates the degree of intimacy that is supposed to exist between us and God. But that intimacy is lost when they hide from God. They're afraid of him, not in the positive sense of being in awe of him. They're just scared. It is a total tragedy that they are now afraid of the one who just wants to come and walk with them. And it's the same for us. Uh, This sin has been passed down to us like a hereditary disease. It can't be avoided. And it makes us want to hide from God. We don't want all the stuff that's lurking in the darkness to be brought out into the light. We're ashamed and we're fearful. Thank God for Jesus, who not only takes away our sin, but also our guilt, our shame, and our fear. Next, God questions the man. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And this is where the blame game starts. Adam says, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. In a single sentence, Adam blames God and the woman. We're very good at blaming other people, aren't we? The the other day I was driving somewhere with Tissa and there was a turn-off. I'm trying to work out whether we needed to turn off. And so I hesitated and Tissa said, what are you doing? And and I turned off and I shouldn't have done. What do you think the first thing I did when I realised my mistake? Did I say, oh, that, sorry, my mistake, uh, shouldn't have turned off, I'll get us back on track? No, I blamed Tissa for distracting me while I was driving. We're very good at blaming one another. And I don't mean that Tissa and I are especially good at blaming one another. I mean, as human beings, we want to point away from ourselves. We want to, uh, we want to blame someone else. We don't want to accept responsibility for the problem. And then... We have all these consequences. 
the snake is cursed and there's going to be enmity between uh, the, the snake and the woman and her offspring. You see how everything's been messed up. Humans were supposed to hold sway over the animal kingdom. Uh, but now there's going to be this lack of harmony, this discord, this enmity. It says the woman's pains will increase in childbearing. We tend to read this verse in terms of physical pain, but I think it's also suggestive of the emotional pain that many mothers bear, uh, especially when we consider that one of Eve's sons is going to murder the other, and we're going to be looking at Cain and Abel next week. Uh, we used to live in an area that had a, uh, a significant problem with uh, gang violence. And within our congregation, there was quite a number of women whose sons had been murdered. And the emotional pain of that uh, far outweighed the physical pain of childbirth, made it pale into insignificance, I think. And then we have what could be regarded, I think, as one of the saddest statements in the whole of the Bible says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The subjugation, degradation, and abuse of women is not just a feature of archaic cultures in distant lands. It happens here in Springfield. I was shocked to discover that one in six Australian women has experienced physical or sexual violence from a current or former partner. And I know it can go the other way round, but on a global scale, it is more often the case that men perpetrate violence against women. And this is another tragic consequence of humankind turning away from God. And something as Christians, we should do everything we can to fight against. Then we see that the joyful work that humans were to undertake on the land is to become painful and toilsome. It's not only uh, humankind's relationship uh, with the animal kingdom that's been affected. Uh, humankind's relationship with the land itself has been spoiled. The summary of all this is that sin spoils everything. It spoils our relationship with God, with creation, and with one another. Every aspect of life at home and in the field has become fraught with grief. But the worst of it comes when God says this. The man has now become like one of us, knowing good from evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Actually, God didn't tell Adam and Eve that they couldn't eat from the tree of life, but it seems that they hadn't already done so. And so God's banished them from the garden so they won't be able to eat from it. In other words, they have no longer got access to eternal life. Sin, uh, death has entered into the human race. Now, this might seem harsh, but wouldn't it seem wrong if creatures who were in total rebellion against God were allowed to live forever? As the theologian John Goldingay puts it, there would be something deeply troubling if people who have declared their independence of God and their insistence of going their own way live on forever in God's realm. But despite sin and death entering into creation, there is a glimmer of hope. We see as an act of compassion, God makes clothes for Adam and Eve. And this gives us the tiniest hint that the human story is not going to end in total disaster. God still loves them. God still loves us. 
Genesis, uh, the early chapters of Genesis, show us uh, that the world is not as it should be. The world is not as God intended it to be. Sin and death have entered in. And next week, we're going to see how things spiraled uh, rapidly downwards. Uh, But as we work through Genesis, we need always to keep Jesus in view. The whole of the Old Testament points forwards to Jesus, who died to take away the sin of the world and was raised to new life, that we might experience the free gifts of forgiveness and eternal life. That is the good news. That is the gospel. That is the hope that we are holding on to as we work through these chapters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you created a good creation for us to enjoy. And we lament the fact that human beings have chosen instead to of uh, enjoying creation within the good boundaries that you've given us. We've willfully overstepped those boundaries. We've sinned, we've rebelled against you. And we pray, Father, that more and more you'll change our hearts and bring our lives and our thoughts and our feelings and our actions uh, in line with your will for us. Father, we long to see the relationship between humanity and you uh, being restored in in our families, in this church, in this community. Uh, We long to see humanity's relationship with creation being restored with one another. We pray for an end to the violence and the the evil that is so prevalent in this world. And we thank you that you have provided the solution. And we pray that we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and know that your promises are good and sure and true. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.